Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everyone. Just before we get this next history hack out and going, just reminded to say that we are on Patreon. If you head to patreon.com forward slash history hack, you can see all the amazing tiers that start from just three pounds a month. But we know that supporting a pod that you might not listen to all of the episodes on, for shame, you may want to just tip us for an episode. So we have signed up with Ko-Fi. So if you go to ko-fi.com forward slash history hack, you can tip us for an episode that you've listened to and quite liked. So whichever way you're able to support us, whether that's just sharing the pod with your friends or being able to support us financially, we cannot thank you enough. So without further ado, hello and welcome to History Hack. We have a fantastic guest and I have an incredible co-host with me today, but it's going to take some work to convince me today because we have the lovely Charlotte White with us. And who shall we be chatting to today, Charlie? Look, we're going to sell you on this, Boney. Come on. It's going to be, you're going to love this. You're going to love this episode. Mm. Yes, you are. We have got Dr. Owen Emerson with us today, and he's the castle historian and assistant curator at Hever Castle. For those who don't immediately recognize the name, that's Anne Boleyn's family home. You may have seen him sharing his insights into the Bolin family in the BBC's recent The Bolins, A Scandalous Family. And we're delighted to have him here with us today to set the record straight on the portrayals of Anne Boleyn that really grind his gears. Hello, Owen. Hello. It's an absolute pleasure to be joining you today. <laughs> we think here at History Hack that we provide a safe space for experts to rant expertly. Fantastic. <laughs> I need that space, unfortunately. <laughs> and you must get this a lot. I mean, working with, with a, a legend such as the legend around Anne Boleyn and working in her family home, uh, there must be a few things about the way you see her portrayed that irritate you. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm quite odd in the fact that I quite enjoy most portrayals of Anne Boleyn. I'm a social and cultural historian, so I really like unpicking um, why it is that Anne has been portrayed across the centuries in certain ways. So, uh, but yes, there, there are varied uh, interpretations, shall we say, of, mm -hmm. of Anne Boleyn on screen in particular. And a lot of people were drawn to her childhood home because of these portrayals. So, you know, you do have to be geared up um, to receive uh, a public who have very divergent ideas about who she was. Mm. I, I am one of those divergent publics. 
So, <laughs> so let, 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 let's get let's get the ball rolling and possibly counterintuitively we're going to start this in the victorian age so owen what did the victorians make of anne boleyn and how did that shape the representations of her that we sort of still see today that's a really um important question i think because the um, Victorians had a very specific idea of who Anne Boleyn was, and I find it quite a, a flat one. Um, she's either a, sort of a hapless victim or an evil temptress. And these are, th- these are sort of themes that will continue to permeate popular culture across the, the 20th century. There's all very little shade to her character. And... Um, I think actually Queen Victoria played a role in uh, engendering particularly this idea of her being uh, a hapless victim. She actually visited Hever Castle in uh, 1834 and she calls her in her diary, poor Queen Anne Boleyn, in her uh, in her diaries. So I think that there, she was almost a catalyst for um, this enduring fascination with, with Anne throughout the Victorian era, she purchases items relating to Anne uh, for the royal collection. Ooh, and what did she get? So she um, purchases the wedding clock that Henry VIII purchased uh, or had created for Anne for their, uh-huh. for their wedding uh, from the Warpole collection. She puts that into the, the royal collection. And she also um, sketches Anne Boleyn on a number of occasions. She goes to the opera to see um, uh, the opera of Anna Boleyna, and um, so, yeah, there's these beautiful sketches of, of Anne Boleyn in mm-hmm. popular culture, as it were. But she also sort of reshapes uh, locations um, relating to Anne Boleyn, such as the Tower of London. Mm-hmm. Um, they are reshaped into um, the, the image of uh, Anne's Tower that the Victorians had. So for the first time, for example, her grave is marked out during Victoria's reign and also the scaffold site is erroneously marked out this is the site where Anne Boleyn was executed (laughs) so you can see them sort of shaping the tower into their own uh, idea of 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 what happened there just just on that so is 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 where the little glass pillow is is that correct or is that Victorian it's Victorian I'm afraid um so Yes, there, there was a visit to the tower and Prince Albert asked that um, the scaffold site be marked out because he believed that Victoria would appreciate it. And they uh, were basically armed with a uh, contemporary sketch of a firing squad uh, <laughs> where, where people were executed on that spot. So it was assumed that that was the place of execution. Um, we actually know that Anne was executed a few 100 yards away um, from there actually opposite where the entrance to the crown jewels is today on the parade ground um so yes Uh, and and we know that for example lady jane gray was executed um uh, uh, on the other side of the white tower um so yes there wasn't sort of a permanent place where these things happened they they happened years apart and scaffolds would be erected in in different differing parts of of the tower precinct so um yes there it was sort of um simplified shall we say into this narrative that yeoman warders could give tours uh, uh, around 
Um, so yes, the, this is very much a Victorian image of what happened. Um, and, and I think this does begin to permeate uh, into to popular culture. Our earliest surviving uh, film of Anne Boleyn comes in the 1920s. And it's really a morality tale uh, for young girls. Um, yeah. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, this is a, a melodrama. This is Anne who's in love with someone else and is chased by a vicious king, a monster, and uh, and pays the ultimate price, you know. Um, a very, very flat image of this uh, fascinating woman, if you ask me. And that really sort of continues into the 1950s. It has really, really long legs. Gosh, that's incredible. So, so in, in effect, the Victorians' invention of tourism, as we know it today, going to see um, stately homes and castles, has affected the, the story of, of Anne Boleyn. Come and see where this sad, sad woman lost her head. Absolutely. And and also, you know, working in a place like Hever Castle, um, which, uh, although it's the same space that Anne occupied, has been reimagined over the generations, not least by William Wardorf Astor in the Edwardian era. Mm. Um, we get a sense of this aesthetic of what the Tudor court would have been like, this oaken panelled, uh, dark chambered environment, which really isn't the case. I mean, most Tudor rooms would have been plasterboard, hung with beautiful arras and bright tapestries, which would have caught the light. And, you know, this would have been a really bright environment because, of course, they didn't have electric lighting. They needed chambers to be brighter. Um, so, yeah, I, I think we can sense, like, popular culture drawing upon these pastiches um, uh, and and creating a Tudor aesthetic that never really existed and the same is happening for the stories of the people that occupied these spaces so yes so if you look at for example the private life of Henry VIII a film in the 30s again we see Anne. I love that film oh, it's amazing it's and it's it's a comedy I mean it's a, a brilliant film largely and unusually centered around uh, husband and wife, uh, Charles Lawton and Elsa Lancaster in the Anne of Cleves story. That's the sort of thrust of the film. But again, Anne's brief appearance is this victim. You know, it's a, it's a beautiful portrayal by Mel Oberon, but it's not a, a, a rounded figure, shall we say. I mean, she's literally on the way to the block uh, yeah. as the film starts. Um, so, yes, a very flat Anne Boleyn to, to begin the 20th century. But she does start to push back. She can't, you can't keep a good woman down. She starts to push back in the 1960s. So tell us what you make of Anne of a Thousand Days, because this is perhaps the first screen representation of Anne Boleyn that is still widely watched today. I, I believe it's available on Netflix and or Amazon Prime if anyone hasn't seen it. Are we any closer at this point to finding the real Anne Boleyn in the swinging 60s? I love this portrayal. I think it's a landmark performance, actually, by, by Jean-Vierre Bujold. It brings blood and fire back into the character. And it is a huge departure from this victim narrative. Um, 
it feels very 1960s, but it's actually based on an earlier play from 1948 by Maxwell Anderson. Uh, they originally starred Rex Harrison and Joyce Redman. Now, there was a television version of the play uh, in the early 50s, uh, which was rebranded as The Trial of Anne Boleyn. They weren't able to insert all of the content because of the Hayes Code, uh, which prevented immoral, immoral subjects being discussed on films, such as incest, uh, which necessarily needs to be part of the plot. So it wasn't until the late 60s, when the Hayes Code had been lifted, that this film could be brought to life. And significant changes happened in between 1948 and 1969, not least because the screenplay was written by Bridget Boland. And she makes the film all about Anne Boleyn. This is not a film about Henry VIII at all. And whereas in the play, it's Henry VIII who gets the last line in the film, it's Anne. And it's such a brilliant and defiant mm -hmm. uh, ending. Um, we get this completely fictitious tower scene where Anne completely shreds uh, Richard Burton's Henry VIII, uh, prophesying that his son will be overshadowed by the Boleyn heir, Elizabeth I. It's a, a really, really glorious scene that allows us to believe that Anne went down fighting and with a confident belief that her daughter will succeed to the throne, that her blood will be well spent. It's a glorious scene. And Jean-Vierre Bougeold, uh, our Canadian Anne Boleyn, is magnificent in it. I mean, she really should have got an Oscar for that scene alone, I think. It's just magnificent. But yeah, I mean, we're really reshaping Anne Boleyn here. This is an Anne who is defying her, her family. She's defying the king. She's refusing to uh, be his mistress. And she's asking for power in return for acquiescing to his advances. And she can be seen to be exercising that power on screen as well. So this really is a radical departure from the more traditional narratives uh, that we'd seen uh, up until this point. And I would argue every performance of Anne Boleyn since has its roots in Bujold's performance. It's quite magnificent. And of course, she's opposite Richard Burton, my favourite. I've, I've just looked it up. She got nominated and lost out to Maggie Smith. She did, yeah, for the Prime Minister and Brody. I mean, Richard Burton really hated his performance in the film. And I, I, I think he's really quite brilliant in it. But um, she does act him under the table. And there's a really weird dynamic going on on set as well, because... Elizabeth Taylor wanted to play the role of Anne, but was deemed too old to, to do it. Um, and there's, there's sort of a mirroring going on here between the story of Catherine of Aragon and Anne Boleyn and the story of Elizabeth Taylor and Jean-Vierre Bujold, because Elizabeth Taylor was terrified that Richard Burton was going to fall in love with uh, Jean-Vierre Bujold uh, as Anne Boleyn. And... There are more than hints that something is going on in Richard Burton's diaries, that he is slightly obsessed with Jean-Vierre Bujold, uh, almost hate-obsessed uh, with her. Uh, he calls her gin in, her, in his diaries. And we also know that Elizabeth Taylor read Richard Burton's diaries. So <laughs> a lot of the slightly ungenerous stuff that he's writing about her may seem um, slightly 
placed, shall we say. Um, And there there is a really nice anecdote that Elizabeth Taylor is on set so much to try and thwart any relationship that um, she's actually given a bit part. She, She does appear in the film as an uncredited cameo part. And Bujol was so furious that Taylor is on set all of the time that she um, sort of loses it just before doing that magnificent tower scene. And she says to uh, the director, I'm going to give that bitch an acting lesson she will never forget. Um, So this is really weird sort of subtext going on in the background (laughs) that is mirroring what's happening on screen. It's, It's quite extraordinary, really. How fantastic. Uh, any stories about Burton and Taylor I'm here for? Oh, my God, yeah. No, totally. And not least, he buys her the, the La Peregrina Pearl just before this film starts shooting. And it's, it's widely believed he purchases this as a, sorry, you didn't get to play Anne um, <laughs> moment. Which is, and this pearl, of course, was, was owned by Mary I. You know, this is a really historic uh, pearl. And... and uh, Elizabeth Taylor actually wears it to, to Hever Castle. It's a lovely little um, tie-in with the Tudor story. It's mm. quite it's quite amazing. Goodness. We should move on. Otherwise, we will sit here and talk about Burton and Taylor <laughs> far too much. So let, let's move things forward a little bit. So this sort of this push to make Anne sort of protagonist in her own right to takes a step further in the other Boleyn girl, where we go from the powerful woman making the pronouncement just before she dies to a bit of a bitch, basically. So have we gone too far the other way or is that a little bit closer to the real Anne? I think in a way we're getting a little bit closer, but in another way, we're simply pivoting to another perspective and seeing every bit as narrow a view as we have before and perhaps even more so. I mean, the Anne of history let's be honest, was far from being universally liked or approved of uh, by her contemporaries. She really divided opinion like no other person. But even her adversaries were obsessed by her. They couldn't help but note down what she was wearing, what she was saying, what she was doing. I mean, she, she beguiled everyone, whether or not they liked or loathed her. And I think, you know... What we do know from many, many sources is that she had wit, intelligence. She could command the attention of a room with ease. And I don't actually think we see anything like that in The Other Berlin Girl. This is quite, a, again, another flat uh, interpretation. And I also, and I'm saying this as a man sitting here from the comfort of my desk, um, I find it a really odd uh, idea that it's a sort of a feminist act to to rehabilitate one woman's character at the expense of bringing another woman's character down. This was very much billed as a, a feminist text because it rehabilitated Mary Boleyn. Um, but in doing so, it, there's sort of a pendulum shift, in my opinion, that um, all of the historic tropes about Anne Boleyn are reattached to her. And we really see a monster Anne in this betrayal. Um, we see her plotting to kill Catherine of Aragon and uh, Catherine's daughter Mary. She actually does kill Bishop Fisher in this novel. It's 
quite an extraordinary uh, claim. She does sleep with her brother. She does the very thing that is uh, she's accused of uh, at her trial. And in a way, we're reattaching all of the Catholic propaganda that was placed on Anne Boleyn during Elizabeth I's reign. All of these tropes are being resurrected and, and reattached to her. Um, but of course, we do have a, a very interesting perspective of Mary Boleyn here, a very saintly um, portrayal of Mary. And I'm not really sure where any of that comes from, to be honest, because we know so very little about Mary Boleyn. Um, Eric Ives, the late great professor who sort of wrote the canonical text on Anne Boleyn, once quipped that everything we know about Mary Boleyn could fit on a postcard with room to spare for the address. And we really just have one letter from Mary Boleyn. It's a letter to Cromwell after she's banished from court for marrying without familial and, and royal consent. And my God, she is such a Boleyn in this letter. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's headstrong and obstinate and she's essentially saying I'd rather beg my bread and love than be any queen um like my sister um so we yeah we see this monstering of Anne to create a saintly Mary Boleyn and I think neither uh, characterization is compelling or accurate um again we've made both women really rather boring and quite flat I mean, we should say that we're we're that we're discussing here the novel, the other Boleyn girl. We're not even going to mention the Hollywood turd fest that that came out of it, where there was I, all the way through. I was thinking Cardinal Wolsey's going to come in at any minute. He's going any, he any minute. Here comes Cardinal Wolsey, and they completely left him out. Now I I feel I have to jump in just as the as the the woman in the room about the. The, the feminist portrayal in this it's so interesting what you say because they've taken mary and they've made her the victorian anne she's completely helpless all these things happen to her like everything everything happens to mary bolin she has no agency whatsoever and with anne i find the most interesting thing about that novel is the question and with with any feminist portrayal of of women the rehabilitation can never be to try and make them perfect because guess what? We're not. Um, we're just humans. And with Anne and the incest question, even though that was a hundred, I, I believe it was completely fabricated to bring her down. But there's an interesting question in that. If you are in Anne's position and you put yourself in her shoes and he needs a son and we don't know whether he's able to provide her with one, because no one discusses what you know, Henry's ability in the bedroom. Who can you trust? And who, if if that child came out looking like Henry Norris, it's like that the prince looks a bit Norrisy. He looks a bit like Western. He just looked like a Bolin. You say he looks like a Bolin. So, you know, I, I liked that the book raised that that question because it was never explicit. It was the, the door is shut literally. You don't know what's happening behind that door. But she might have been cleverer. And I think that's where the, the other Boleyn girl gives Anne a little bit more, is they suggest she might have been really, really quite clever. 
that's a really really good point actually and i think um it does it does give her um a sense of intelligence that other portrayals just just hadn't really uh, touched upon even with Bujold's um uh, portrayal in Anne of the Thousand Days we we get a sense that all of these things are happening to her and she's making the best deal that she can out of all the things that are being you know foisted upon her whereas you're right you know in the other Bilingo we do see a, a lot more agency even if it's not the kind of um decision making that I think necessarily actually happened <laughs> um, so in that sense you're completely right there is there is a lot more um intelligence on the show isn't there mm. But of course, we we don't particularly like intelligent women. Clearly, she's a bitch. Um, yeah, <laughs> jumping sadly, I know, isn't it? Nothing changes. Um, let's jump forward. Let's have a little bit of fun here. Let's go. Let's go into some really fun portrayals. And I think we can all agree uh, that the Tudors was some quality, quality historical TV softcore. That's what it was. So tell us about. Natalie Dormer's portrayal of Anne. Is it true that she actually got a bit involved in that? Yeah. (laughs) So she is, and so um, it's such an electric performance, isn't it? It it, it very much reminds me of Bujold's Anne. Uh, It's it's all Bujold for a new generation, and there are massive um, differences between the portrayals as well. And my goodness, it really, really was a, a softcore production, wasn't it? I mean, everything's going on in this one. <laughs> and, do you know, I love it for all its madness. I really do. And I, it kind of irks me that, um, you know, a lot of eminent historians have really enjoyed dunking, you know, on this particular series. Mm. Um, but my goodness, how many, how many people have been drawn into these many many people's stories because of this one uh very very elaborate uh television series and that can only be a good thing my goodness um <laughs> it really can um but I, yeah i think it, it's a wonderfully mad uh- in a sudden flash it all comes clear it's a eureka moment an epiphany hi i'm marcus smith host of the constant wonder podcast the world offers marvel meaning and mystery around every single corner In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Um, Portrayal. Um, And yet there are flickers of brilliance in this series. There really are. And I think Dorma was instrumental in ensuring that Anne Boleyn shone in the same kind of way that the Bujold had. And um, this is definitely an Anne for the noughties. But I get the feeling that this Anne Boleyn would have been far naughtier had it not been for Natalie Dormer insisting that it was taken a bit more seriously, that Anne was taken a bit more seriously, and that primary sources were consulted and that this was reflected in her character in the second series and you can see a real discernible difference between the Amberlynn of the first series mm. and the Amberlynn of the second series she herself really did her homework and wanted just a fairer portrayal a fairer sort of slice of the pie for, for Anne 
And I think we get a much keener sense of power play in the second series. We see Ant's agency a lot more. Uh, we, we sort of get a bit further away from this idea that she's being completely manipulated either by the king or the male relatives in her household. And we see her, again, wielding considerable power. Uh, we see lovely vignettes, for example, of her uh, religious beliefs, um, which are sort of threaded uh, mm. throughout this sort of crazy narrative that's constructed. And just little things, like um, she insisted that Anne's hair be dark. They really liked, they really wanted to have a blonde Anne Boleyn for some reason, but she just went ahead and dyed her hair. Uh, because she understood the importance of Anne looking different, because she did look different. You know, she did sort of cut against the grain of what was uh, desirable in the in the Tudor era. Um, so yeah, I've got I've got a huge respect for her. Actually, I think she she did some really good and interesting things for that series. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Has she I'm ever been to Hever? That's a really good question. I know she did some um, she did some sort of promotional videos at the Tower of London and Hampton Court, but I never saw one at Hever Castle. And um, in fact, in the Tudors, the series, uh, Hever is uh, it does appear, but very CGI'd. Um, <laughs> so I think most of the, the filming was done in Ireland, actually. So um yeah we we didn't actually get to to appear in in the Tudors uh physically which is a shame <laughs> yeah very much so um i actually really loved um many many elements of of helena bonham carter's portrayal of Anne Boleyn. again this is a really bonkers series. I mean, it's uh, from 2003. Uh, it's sort of ITV's sort of power play, I, I guess, uh, to, to 
show the BBC that they could be a, a major player in the historical drama uh, arena. And they haven't really done the Tudors before. This was uh, a, a new thing. When when in the 1970s, uh, the, the BBC was sort of dominating with the, the Tudor trilogy of um, The Six Wives of Henry VIII, Elizabeth R and The Shadow of the Tower series. ITV were kind of doing Edwardian stuff and Austin stuff. And I think this was their sort of first real sort of foray into, into Tudor drama. And it is slightly bonkers. Um, I actually think Ray Winston has moments of genius in it. He does look very like Henry VIII. Which um, series is this? I'm, I'm, I don't think so, I've seen this. Yeah, so this is from 2003. It's a two-parter. And uh, he plays Henry VIII. He has a wonderful Cockney accent in it, of, of course. course. And, you know, there are moments where he's sort of shouting, Anne, um, <laughs> in, a, in a really uh, amazing and very entertaining way. Um, but, yeah, I mean, again, I, I think actually Peter Morgan drew upon all, all the worst sort of tropes of, the, the six wives. I mean, Catherine of Aragon is a, just a bit part again. Uh, poor Catherine of Aragon. I wish we could have a renaissance of like, you know, her being taken seriously. I guess we've seen that the beginnings of that in the, um, the Spanish princess series. Um, but oh, she's always second fiddle, isn't she? And it's, it's so frustrating. It really is because as someone who adores Anne Boleyn, I see many of the same qualities in, in Catherine of Aragon that I do in Anne. And it, it really irks me that she's this sort of just throwaway bit part. Um, it's, it's really frustrating. Um, Let's turn yes. this oh. screw a little bit more and bring in Mr. I love her so much. Mr. Royal. so brilliant. And I, I just everybody knows the crown and they probably Catherine of Aragon's story before she has to be pious and sad because this was a really powerful and beginning of it. Woman who, um, better than just being the foreground of Anne story. He should be knighted for her. She was married to Henry for longer than all the other wives. Again, what about that? You know, she has moments Sort of early 90s and I you know and again we're sort I'd of love to have seen a whole episode of a center playing her because she did a brilliant a job she really really did um but of course this wasn't Peter Morgan's only foray into the um Tudor world he did the film version of the other Berlin girl and actually he sort of self-plagiarized a bit in that film he bought a lot of uh the scenes that he created for Henry VIII into the Philippa Gregory adaptation. Mm -hmm. And one of them, and I'm going to put a content warning here about the sexual assault and, mm -hmm. um, and rape, because um, in both productions, we have Henry VIII raping Anne. And I've never really been able to get my head around why this was firstly done in the first instance in, in 2003, because there was a, a big uh, discussion about it then. Mm. And, and Peter Morgan responded by saying, and I quote, most historians will find what we have done scandalous, but I'm aiming to stimulate greater interest in history rather than to score points with a particular version of events. 
and I can't I, I can't really relate to that inclusion um, sort of stimulating any kind of meaningful discussion. It's not rooted in the historical narrative in any way at all. And, um, you know, even Helen Bonham Carter talked at the time about how disturbing she found it to do. Mm. Um, and then it was repeated in the, um, in the film version of The Other Berlin Girl. And I just, mm. I couldn't, I could not get my head around why, what, what, why it was there. Um, yeah, it, and I think that we do need to have an important discussion about the use of such, uh, you know, a plot line. Yeah. What 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 is it there for? Is it literally just there to titillate, which is what that kind of suggests? And I find that really disturbing, actually. It's almost like you know when it says it's there to provoke discussion. It's 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 there to provoke discussion of look what we've done. Isn't this scandalous and and naughty? It didn't even fit with the narrative of the film. It didn't feel like because you feel like maybe okay. Even if you're going to give him completely free reign, if artistically it had felt like that portrayal was leading up to that inevitable conclusion, it felt right. right. Joined us a few times on the pod. It was so tagged on, like you say, just there to titillate or (laughs) not good. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I think what was worse actually was the implication that Anne had almost driven him to it. Yeah. that she'd used her French ways to beguile him in the first place and that this was the, sort of the, the natural conclusion of what she'd been doing. And in both instances, in the, in the 2003 um, uh, version, it happens during Anne's queenship mm-hmm. and he's sort of the marker of where things go wrong. Yeah. And but before, uh, sorry, but later in the in the other Berlin girl film, it happens just before they marry, and Anne and Henry are never happy during their marriage in that film. I mean, it's such a brief queenship, and it. I, I just take real objection to them using this horrific act of violence as the the sort of turning point of that the leads to Anne's downfall. It's, it it feels utterly repugnant to me, if I'm honest, and. Yeah. Yeah, and in terms of a portrayal of of a of a woman that you've spent a lot of time with, to effectively say she was asking for it and that's that's what she got is hugely offensive. It really, really is, and um, you know I do come across this sentiment much more often than I would like to, if I'm honest. Uh, you know, if I do upload a video to YouTube, mm-hmm. um, quite often you know, I would say about 5% of the responses to it are she deserved what she got. Um, And I can't help but think these really ugly, these really mean girlish portrayals have uh, sort of underpinned that, uh, that narrative of she, she got what she got, what she deserved essentially. And um, that really doesn't sit well with me, (laughs) regardless of what you think about her, the, the notion that, she she deserved that horrific act of violence at the end of her life is um we should pretty... say that we've moved we've moved on now to talking about deserving having her head cut off yeah oh, okay. head cut off yeah absolutely just as just as evil evil a sentiment yeah yes. it's it's a shame that by by giving her agency it's it's meant that well that's your fault then you <laughs> know yes <laughs> you can either be yeah. a victim 
Or it's your fault. And this this is the the ultimate horrific dichotomy, isn't it? It's like uh, careful what you wish for, isn't it? You know, if, if you if you want to see a, a woman in acting agency, then you're going to see a very horrific and ugly version of her doing so. It's uh, it's like you can't win, really. Those uh, those morality tales of the Hayes Code haven't gone too far. But let's bring us bang up to date. And this is where I get my fangirl on, because if there's one thing I want to be when I grow up, it's Hilary Mantel, because I love her more than I can tell you. So let's talk about the most recent portrayal of Anne in popular fiction. Talk to us about Wolf Hall. Is this the most honest Anne? This is a really... Uh, contentious issue actually among the Anne fandom because there is a massive fandom of, of mm. Anne Boleyn and actually Claire Foy's, uh, Claire Foy's portrayal of Anne wasn't particularly well received uh, amongst the fandom um, and nor of course were the the novels that, that came before um, but I have a real liking of it actually and I think the question of it being the most honest portrayal is a really important one because while it may not be the most rounded performance or uh, sort of characterization, Hilary Mantel was really sort of um, explicit about the fact that there's always a piece of Anne Boleyn's puzzle missing. And I think any historian worth their you know, worth a grain of salt would recognise the fact that we actually don't have a full Anne Boleyn in the historical records. We are pretty much always seeing her through other people's eyes for a start. Um, we do luckily have a few surviving letters and a few inscriptions in Anne's own words. But the rest of the story is being told by other people. Um, and this is, I think, probably the most honest way of portraying Anne. And of course, we are always seeing Anne Boleyn in Wolf Hall and bring up the bodies through the eyes of Thomas Cromwell. And to me, this is honest because we only really see her through other people's eyes, as I've said, through the eyes of Eustace Chapuis, for example, the Spanish ambassador. We get a lot of our information about what Anne says, does, um, through his reports. And do you know what? To, to Cromwell, Anne probably wouldn't have been the most appealing person um, to look at. We know that she is very class conscious. We know towards the end of her queenship, she admonishes uh, Mark Smeaton for looking at her uh, mm. because he's an inferior person. This is someone who would have looked very different to different people at court. Um, and I just, yeah, I do find uh, some, some real honesty here, actually. She wasn't a liked individual. Even members of her own family struggled to support her queenship. And she did make herself very unpopular. And Claire Foy does a really, really brilliant job in this role of showing a woman who is committed to her beliefs, who is exercising power, uh, but who is vulnerable. And I think I think we can see a lot of her hardness as vulnerability <laughs> um, because she is alone. She only has the support of a few members of her family and the king. Um, and I love how bold Claire Foy is in this part. I think she really gets to the nub of what made Anne so fascinating. And 
more than that, she takes us on a journey which I think is massively impressive. I think you'd be hard, hard, you know, it'd be hard to warm to Anne Boleyn at the beginning of the series, but it would be hard not to have a broken heart for her at the end when she's on the scaffold, completely vulnerable, mm. and is showing um, amazing bravery, but is obviously terrified, which anyone would be in that situation. And I think that's an amazing arc to go on. I mean, it, when Jean-Vierre Bougeot stands on the scaffold, your heart has been with her right from the beginning. You've always been on her side, but not with Claire Foy. And yet she manages even to bring, you know, on side those who weren't supporting her. And that is what the Anne of history did. So when Anne is tried, people like Eustache Apwee, who have no love for her, because he is the Spanish ambassador, he's naturally going to be uh, supportive of Catherine of Aragon. Even he knows that she's innocent. Even he begins to start feeling sympathy toward her and knows that she's being stitched up and can't really believe that the king is going to do what he's going to do to her. You can actually see him changing his mind. And there's also a, a poem by Lancelot de Carl, who was... Um, uh, uh, working for the, the French ambassador. He what writes this amazing poem after Anne's downfall, where he shows why people would believe her to be guilty. Of course, Mark Smeaton, the, the court musician, confessed to having adultery, uh, committed adultery with Anne, probably under torture. Mm -hmm. But he, he demonstrates that even up until Anne is tried, people are thinking that she's guilty, but her performance both at her trial and her execution, convinces people otherwise. You can see that she has made people's opinion shift. Um, so, so brilliant is she at defending herself. So I think we really are seeing here a reflection of what actually happened at the time. And, and from a historian's perspective, that's a, that's a magical thing. I, the, the thing with Claire Foy... And that performance that really got me, and it's straight out of the pages of the book, is, is Anne on the scaffold still looking around, still waiting for Henry to come and call it off and, you know, say, right, you've learned your lesson, go off and live in a nunnery. Or, ha-ha, it was all a joke, you know, because we, we know he liked, to, he liked to sort of masquerade and that kind of thing. And she does that perfectly throughout the whole thing. I mean, calling Cromwell Crimwell, the whole way to expected French accent is just beautiful because you just think she's just such a she's such a cow. She's wonderful. But that moment where and you, you get the sense that maybe nobody believed. Maybe nobody believed that that was genuinely going to happen. And except Cromwell, or maybe he didn't even. Yeah, it's the you shock. That, it really is a shocking, shocking scene. And it was so beautifully directed, so beautifully played by Claire Foy. Um, and you're completely right. Henry was, he was so uh, involved in what was going to happen to Anne. Uh, and Tracy Borman has uncovered this recently. He was involved in the you know, real minutiae of what was going to happen to his wife on that scaffold. It's really chilling. Mm -hmm. There is documentation that he's setting down precedents, not only of what's to happen to Anne, but any future queens. It's a really chilling moment that you're, you're getting into Henry's psychology. But there are, there are mistakes on that day, which tell us that I think people 
did not believe it was going to happen. For example, Henry had ordered that no foreigners were to view the execution of the Queen, and yet they left the gates open, um, which meant that a huge number of people did witness it. Perhaps 2,000 people uh, witnessed this so-called private execution. There was also the question of the coffin. No one thought to create a coffin for the Queen's body. I think this tells us that it was expected, at least by some people uh, involved in the preparations, that this wasn't actually going to go ahead. And Anne's body lies there on the scaffold while they're trying to think of what what they can do with it. They have to go to the uh, armory and find a a chest that was designed to carry bow staves. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, she's buried in an, an elm arrow chest. These are not the actions of people who are well prepared for what is going to happen. That might be reflective of the brevity of Anne's downfall because it was alarmingly brief. No other person in Tudor history fell as quickly as Anne Boleyn. Well, Cromwell did. Um, <laughs> yes, yeah, but even 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 he um, managed to to stay in the tower longer than the Queen. I mean, it's extraordinary. Um, I think he between arrest and execution, it's about fifty odd days, if I've got it correct, with Cromwell, with Catherine Howard, she's languishing in Sion House uh, for months um, uh, because the King actually wants to get to the bottom of what has happened. He doesn't need to do that with Anne Boleyn because nothing had happened. It was a stitch-up job. Anne is dead within two weeks. It's extraordinary, uh, you know. I mean, even more and Fisher languish in the tower for a year. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it reeks of a, a, a stitch-up job. And you are so right that Claire's performance in that sort of really highlights how uncertain everyone was. This wasn't... Uh, you know, I, I think we all often read history backwards and, and see the, these things in, as an inevitability. But a, a Queen of England had never been put to death before. This was an unthinkable act. And until that sword swung, I think most people would have thought, nah, it, it, that's not going to happen. I, yeah, I just wanted to say Peter Kaminsky directs that scene perfectly. The, just the way you're he makes her so alone yes and you know the, the way she's she she can't say her last words and uh, you know it, the this unrealness of everything it, it's as someone who's not a big fan of the balloons mm-hmm. um you kind of think oh here we go but even even my hard cold heart absolutely broke for her and in, in, in that scene. i thought claire foy was incredible and that little bit of distance between the audience and yeah, the, the sword's been preparing it, it oh it's it's and it just seems to go on forever yeah as as these things would have they were they were mm-hmm. ceremonial you know they were there was etiquette to it you had to say certain things in your execution speech and you know there was a protocol to go through and it was a real mark of genius on peter kuzminski's um uh, part to intercut it with a previous conversation that Cromwell had had with the executioner explaining what was going to happen it you know it really um made prolonged that horror in a way that was really quite effective and I think actually it's the only iteration of Anne's execution on screen that didn't glorify it in some weird way Mm. um because of course that ceremonial element to an execution 
was meant to glorify it in a, in a certain way that the etiquette made it almost like a state occasion mm. uh this didn't feel like that at all it just felt you were almost um a voyeur on something really horrific which it of course it was yeah, she's, she's very much a victim and not a martyr well, she's yes. she's a human i think that's that's where yeah. the where the real rehabilitation comes in claire foy's performance and obviously the great dame hillary mantel's writing is that you don't like anne every day you don't like her the whole way through but you feel very very bad when she has her head cut off for something she didn't do that it's you know just you don't have to think that she was a saint to not want to see somebody end in that way that's such a beautiful way of putting it. It really is. Yeah, but uh, we haven't talked about all of the portrayals of, of Anne Boleyn and, and you know, the, the, perhaps the the greatest uh, Henry VIII film, Carry On, Henry. Oh God, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> good old, yeah, good old Carry On, Henry. Um, you can't but to- not love it. <laughs> don't, don't. It's, oh, it's so. Honestly, I think it's one of the most beautiful sort of uh, takes on, uh, you know, I think that they had to they had to change the subtitle of it because it was meant to be Anne of the Thousand Lays. Um, <laughs> and uh, apparently, uh, you know, Universal weren't very happy about it because they'd been very generous in loaning uh, loads of the sets and costumes from Anne of the Thousand Days uh, for the 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 piss take version basically um i love i love those carry-ons they're amazing the fact that they did the same for cleopatra as well carry on cleo they used all the costumes all the sets it's amazing such a stroke of genius to you know do it on a on a shoestring budget but make it look as beautiful as the the thing you're taking the piss out of it's amazing Right, yeah, I think that's a great place because I'm going to start talking about Carry On Cleo now. But um, <laughs> so that is probably a good a good point to start wrapping up. Owen, you have you have made me think about the way I've looked at the Berlins and Anne particularly. So thank you very much for that. Still not their biggest fans as a family. I think they had issues <laughs> mildly, but this has been fantastic fun. Thank you so much for for putting me right. And um, I do need to go back and watch Anne of a Thousand Days because that is a marvellous, marvellous film. But thank you so much, Charlie. As always, an utter pleasure. Fabulous. And History Hack fans, we shall be back. Thank you, as always. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them, and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack, or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support, and here's to your next great book. 
That's stamps.com code program.